Brothers and sisters, we are in chapter 16. We are now more than halfway through the book of Leviticus. You may have noticed that I have skipped over a few chapters recently without really mentioning it or explaining why I did so. In fact, in fact, last week in preaching on Leviticus 14 for the cleansing of the leper, I skipped over chapter 13. And today in preaching on chapter 16, I have skipped over chapter 15. I chose to skip over these for several reasons. First, I skipped over chapter 13 because 13 and 14 are kind of a whole. They both deal with leprosy. Um, Chapter 13 deals with identifying leprosy, while chapter 14, as we saw, deals with its cleansing. But for our purposes, I chose really to focus in on chapter 14, though in a sense we could say that by discussing the fact that leprosy is a picture of sin, we really did unpack the purposes of chapter 13 as well. Furthermore, for today, I chose to skip over chapter 15 because it is very much related to matters that we already dealt with in chapter 12 on the uncleanness after childbirth. For example, chapter 15 deals with things like the uncleanness from sexual relations between a man and a wife, as well as the uncleanness from menstruation, all of which, as I said back in chapter 12, relates to the production of life and is unclean under the law to show that all mankind is tainted by sin, even from the first moment of conception. And so I chose to skip over chapter 15, and I promise I didn't skip over it just because it's a little bit awkward. Um, In fact, I kind of laughed when I read Patrick Fairbairn. He's been one of my favorite kind of commentators on the typology of the law. He's writing during the Victorian era when you like just didn't talk about certain things. Um, And when he gets to this, he he says, basically, I decided not to go into great detail, quote, for obvious reasons, right? And he's like, that's all I'm going to say. I promise that's not why we skipped over it. We basically touched uh, largely on the purpose of it in chapter 12. Well, today we are in chapter 16, and we are looking at the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, means the Day of Atonement in Hebrew. It's hard to overestimate the importance of the Day of Atonement when we consider this passage. It's hard to overdo the importance that this has in Scripture and in the life of ancient Israel and in showing forth Christ. For example, simply from a literary perspective, Not only is the Day of Atonement more or less the center of the book of Leviticus, but it's also basically the center of the Pentateuch as a whole. And Many scholars argue that this was intentionally done to highlight the importance of this great day. Ancient Jews simply referred to it as the day. It needed no other qualification. It was just the day. And when you said the day, you knew exactly what they were talking about. In fact, in their religious calendar today, um, which is not the same thing as their monthly calendar, um, you know, in a certain sense, we kind of have different calendars that we speak of. We have several New Year's throughout the year. You might think, really? Well, we talk about the start of a new school year, September. We might talk about the start of a new financial year, right? Whenever the first quarter starts for different entities, it's a little bit different. Those are all the beginning of a kind of calendar, And yet, really, the calendar year starts in January. 
Well, similarly, the Day of Atonement is on the seventh month, but as far as the religious calendar of Jews today, it takes place at the very beginning of their religious year, along with Rosh Hashanah. Have you ever heard of Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah just means, literally means the head of the year or the beginning of the year, and the Day of Atonement is right after it due to its great importance. It's not hard to see why they understood this day to be so important. In fact, the whole theme of the book of Leviticus, God's dwelling among a sinful people, absolutely hinges upon this day. He cannot dwell with them if there is no day of atonement. You know, we've seen as we've gone through Leviticus all the various ways in which people could be cleansed from uncleanness depending on their level of uncleanness. And people would be doing that all throughout the year, right? Lepers would be getting cleansed. Every day there would be people who would be bathing and washing their clothes and clean until evening. That happened all year long, and yet still, even if they had been cleansed, still, even if they had been ever so careful to keep themselves clean and taken the necessary measures, still it's not enough. They still have some degree of uncleanness that needs to be atoned for. You know, some commentators argue that the Day of Atonement was necessary simply for those cases in which someone had become unclean but was ignorant of it. They didn't know about it. Gordon Wenham, for example, writes, the uncleanness rules are so wide-ranging that inevitably someone is going to infringe them unwittingly and pollute the sanctuary. And according to him, that's, that's kind of the purpose of the Day of Atonement. It atones for all those ways of uncleanness that people didn't know about. Now, I agree that that kind of thing definitely happened. I mean, you read of these things and you're thinking, you know, what if a lizard jumps on something and then you eat it and you didn't know it? You would have been unclean and not known it, right? That kind of thing was probably very common. However, according to the text itself, the scope of the sins covered on the Day of Atonement is much bigger than merely sins of ignorance. Rather, it's for all of Israel, for all of their sins, and for all of their transgressions. I think the point that God is trying to make with the Day of Atonement is that you may not have become unclean by transgressing the ceremonial law. You may not have become unclean by committing some kind of sin, as, as we read about, such as making a rash oath. Yet according to God, you still have some uncleanness somewhere. Proverbs says it best in Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? At the end of the day, if you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself, there is uncleanness in here that needs to be atoned for. Though in other ways, you might not have to be ceremonially cleansed. And so the Day of Atonement confronts every Israelite with the fact that no matter how holy they might be otherwise, no matter how fastidious they might be to keep themselves ceremonially clean, they still have an uncleanness that needs to be atoned for. In fact, as we'll see, the Day of Atonement calls Israel, as well as us, I would say, in a certain kind of application. 
to ponder, to meditate upon our sin and the sinfulness of sin, to truly lament and to mourn. No one was exempted from this in Israel. And yet, brothers and sisters, though the Day of Atonement was a day to mourn over sin, it was never a day of hopeless mourning. That would miss the whole point of the day. There was a sacrifice which could cleanse and take away all these sins that were confessed by the high priest. And in these sacrifices, ultimately, we see Christ as our great sin sacrifice and our great scapegoat who has fully cleansed and taken away our sin. Well, having said that, now let us ourselves consider the magnitude of the Day of Atonement. What I'd like us to do is walk through the passage because there are a lot of little things that need to be unpacked. But as we go along, we will consider application and particularly, how does Christ fulfill this passage? And also, in what way ought we even today mourn over sin, right? Well, that being said, take your Bible and open and look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, right away, right away we have kind of a, a curious introduction to this whole chapter. The Day of Atonement is prefaced with a reminder of the judgment against Nadab and Abihu but that occurred all the way in chapter 10, which kind of seems upon first reading to come out of nowhere. However, if you remember, this whole third section of the book of Leviticus, from chapters 11 to 16, was really introduced by the death of Nadab and Abihu. For example, it was back then in chapter 10 when God says to Aaron, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And then what do we have after that? Well, seven chapters expounding clean and unclean, right? So God used that as kind of a, a thematic way of bringing in that material. Furthermore, it's fitting that chapter 16 connects back to their deaths, perhaps also to impress upon Aaron the great danger, not only of coming into his presence in general, but especially of coming into his direct presence on the Day of Atonement. It says in verse 2 of chapter 16, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So God himself will appear over the mercy seat, and if Aaron goes there in a time when he is not supposed to go, or in a manner in which he is not supposed to go, as Nadab and Abihu did, he will die just like his sons. Verse 3 continues, But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. Interestingly, the Day of Atonement, that term does not appear at all in this chapter, and the text almost just kind of charges ahead without telling us, oh, by the way, I'm about to describe the Day of Atonement. It's clear from later and other passages, this is the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, but that's just kind of how it starts, okay? Verse 3, Aaron shall come into the holy place, quote, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, 
and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. Now, one of the funny things about preaching through the whole Pentateuch is that as a preacher, sometimes you find yourself... uh, publicly to stand corrected by the Word of God as you go along and realize, oh, I kind of explained something differently that actually is not the case. And I think in this chapter, I found I I myself stand corrected. I had thought, and I think I may have preached, that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would be in his full high priestly garb with all the tunic and the urim and the thummim and the chest plate and the golden... uh, crown on his, t- on his head, and yet it's clear from the passage that that is not actually the case. He's wearing priestly car- garments, but they are kind of the most basic linen priestly garments that could be worn, and so I, I apologize for any confusion. Uh, the word has clarified some things. The purpose of his wearing this and not his full high priestly garb probably has to do with the fact the Day of Atonement was a day of great mourning over sin, as we shall see. Of all the religious days that Israel was to keep, it was only on the Day of Atonement that they were said to, quote, afflict themselves and humble themselves. We'll see exactly what that entailed later on, but suffice to say, it means that it would not be appropriate, even for the high priest, to appear in his full glorious robe in the presence of God on such a day of mourning. It would be like if you went to a funeral and wore uh, a really flashy suit. You're like, that's just not the purpose of what we're trying to do here. And on this day, it's appropriate that he wears something simple. John Gill notes that the normal high priestly garments would be, quote, unsuitable to a day of affliction and humiliation. Verse 5, And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Well, with that, the priest would have all the sacrifices, either for himself or for Israel, that he would need that day, and he would be dressed accordingly. Now, with verses 6 through 10, we begin to look at the actual sacrificial ceremony that would take place However, one of the difficulties as you read through chapter 16 16, is that at first glance, it can seem kind of hard to follow. One minute, it's talking about the priest's sacrifice for himself and his family. Then it goes to the two goats, but then it goes back and it seems like it's saying things it's already said before, and it seems to kind of be all over the place and hard to follow. In reality, what's happening is that verses 6 through 10 give us a basic outline of the whole ceremony. They cover everything from the priest's sacrifice for himself and the sacrifices for the people. Verses 11 through 28 go over the same points, but they break them down into greater detail. Okay? Verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. 
But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Well, as I said, those verses there give us the basic uh, overall outline of the Day of Atonement, and I'm not going to go into greater detail until the text goes into greater detail itself later. The only exception to that is that this isn't a... Some of you are already smiling. You're like, Azazel, all right? Um, This is an appropriate place to ask the question, who or what is Azazel? Now, on the one hand, I don't want us to get too hung up on this and miss the big picture, because I think whatever view you choose at the end, the basic meaning is still the same, and that's really the big picture that we want to see. Nevertheless, it's something still worth discussing. As far as the meaning of the term Azazel, like other things in the book of Leviticus, it has been debated going all the way back into antiquity for thousands of years. As far as I can tell, there seems to be four basic views that have been held in the history of interpretation. First, some have suggested that the word Azazel is a compound of two words, meaning goat and to be sent away. Right? I think um, Az and Azal can be put together to mean something along the lines of the goat who is sent away or the one who carries away. In fact, even the Septuagint translates Azazel as the one who carries away, kind of following along like this. That being said, I think it's kind of unlikely that this would be a compound word. I suppose it's possible, but it's kind of a stretch. And let me just say it this way. If it were a compound word, it probably would not be this. Um, you, you would kind of have to arrive at this argument by bringing in some really rare words and kind of... Uh, <laughs> there's an old phrase, if you torture the data long enough, it'll tell you what you want to hear kind of thing. Um, maybe that's this interpretation. Others have suggested that the term Azazel means complete destruction, so that the goat who is sent away is sent away ultimately to its death, to its complete destruction. This could connect with what is said later in verse 22, namely that the goat is sent to a, quote, remote area. But the word for remote area is not very common, and it could be translated as the place of cutting off, which would fit with the idea of total destruction. However, the term for remote area could also just as simply mean an infertile remote area. Thirdly, Others have suggested that Azazel means something along the lines of a rocky precipice or a cliff. This was not only the view of the famous medieval French rabbi named Rashi, but even in modern times, it was adopted by the famous British Hebrew scholar G.R. Driver in the last century. This interpretation actually fits incredibly well with what the Jewish Mishnah says about the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, namely that it was taken out of Jerusalem to a high cliff and pushed over to its death. However, we should keep in mind that the Mishnah was compiled in the centuries after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There is no telling just how ancient the practice was of pushing off the goat over the cliff. But even with that caution, it's still kind of an interesting theory. Fourth and lastly... Probably also, I would say, the most commonly held view 
But you may never have heard this, and upon hearing this, you might be like, I don't think so, Pastor, okay? But it was held by many Orthodox Reformed writers, and that is that Azazel was the name of some kind of demon that was supposed to have lived in the wilderness. In favor of this are several facts. First of all, Azazel is juxtaposed with the personal name of God, Yahweh, implying that Azazel is itself also a personal name of some kind, one goat for Yahweh and another for Azazel. Furthermore, while we don't really have that much time to go into this in great detail, there is some evidence that elsewhere in Scripture, the wilderness is seen as kind of an abode for demons. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless or dry places seeking rest, but finds none. John Gill says on that verse, it refers, quote, to a prevailing notion that unclean spirits walk in and haunt desert and desolate places. Furthermore, interestingly, these demons that dwell in the desert places are often portrayed as related to goats. In fact, if you look over at chapter 17 of Leviticus, verse 7, it says, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. And that term, although it can mean just a goat in the context, it's often referred to um, as being in the wilderness or the desert. And many translations, uh, historically and even modern, understand it in some kind of a demonic sense. I think that uh, the NASB translates it with the term of a satyr, right? Now, of course, on the face of it, this interpretation seems highly problematic for theological reasons. But here we should note that some very orthodox reformed men, much smarter than all of us put together, have held that Azazel was the name of some sort of demon or really referred to Satan. For example, Herman Vitzius or Francis Turretin held that Azazel was a reference to Satan. Vitzius explains that the second goat was for Azazel, quote, not as if it were offered to the devil, for it was devoted to God and brought before him to the tabernacle, but that at the will of God it was exposed to be tormented by the devil. Indeed, that actually fits to some degree with what we know of Christ's death and his atonement. Christ is prophesied to bruise the head of the serpent, but what does the serpent do? It bruises the heel of Christ. In fact, when Christ is arrested, he told those arresting him, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So in that sense, the goat being sent to Azazel, it is argued, could be a picture of Christ being handed over to Satan for a time, though ultimately overcoming him. At the end of the day, however we understand the term, to be honest with you, I don't know that I have made even a firm position yet on this myself. But however we understand the term, the basic purpose of the second goat is easy to see. It bears the sins of the people away from the camp. And we will later see how that beautifully shows the fullness of forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Okay? Moving on in verse 11. It begins to go in greater detail now. 
says, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord. The cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside, inside, blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Now, one of the questions about the Day of Atonement that is often asked, uh, and in fact, I I discussed this um, with one of the brothers last Sunday, is the question, um, how many times does the high priest actually go behind the veil? We know that the Day of Atonement is the one day a year that he could go into it, But it seems likely that he went in on that one day more than one time. The Jews have historically argued, and and I think this makes sense, though you you can disagree with me, that the high priest entered behind the veil a total of four times. Four times. First, they argued, he would bring in the censer of incense behind the veil, right? The purpose of which, so that the cloud goes up, He cannot see, or the incense, the smoke, so he cannot see God in the cloud, and he does not die. Secondly, he would leave the censer there and go and bring in a bowl with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it, and leave. Then he would kill the goat of the sin offering for the people and bring in its blood and sprinkle it. And then lastly, they argued after he had returned the bowl with the blood of the goat, he would return one last time to fetch censer. I guess he could carry the censer with him as he's carrying the bowls of blood, which would make it a total of two times. But again, it was very important that he did not spill any of the blood, especially on the Day of Atonement. With carrying a blood, a bowl full of liquid and a censer, it could be argued that that would be too hard to do. At the end of the day, he went in more than once, but we can disagree on quite however many times. All right, moving on says in verse 16, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may enter, or no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Essentially, what we see in this passage is he begins with the cleansing in the inner side, innermost part, and then he begins to work his way outward, going to the, uh, first with the most holy, 
then the holy place, and then even outward in the court of the tabernacle, sprinkling um, even the altar. This, of course, is a picture of Christ having gone into the true heavenly temple, where according to the author of Hebrews, he made purification by means of his own blood. The author of Hebrews writes, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Furthermore, I find it very interesting <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that the cleansing works its way outward from the innermost part of the sanctuary. I would argue that this connects with other temple imagery that we see elsewhere in Scripture in which a river or a fountain flows outward from the temple to give life and to cleanse away uncleanness. This was true of the Garden of Eden. We read in Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. It's common imagery in prophecies as well. For example, Ezekiel, in his vision of the new temple, sees a river flowing out from the temple, and he says, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish, for this, water, for this God water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Or Zechariah prophesies, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On the one hand, I think this refers to the cleansing of justification, that comes outward to us from the heavenly temple once, once Christ stands on our behalf in his blood in the presence of God. It probably also refers to the cleansing of sanctification by the Spirit and the new birth. Christ sent his Spirit from heaven, and the Spirit is often compared to living waters. For example, Christ says, "'Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, "'out of his heart will flow rivers of living water,' And John then comments, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in that sense, too, we can say our own cleansing came from within the veil outward to us. Well, having cleansed the sanctuary with the blood of the first goat, the high priest now turns his attention to the second goat. Verse 20 says, <clears throat> And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote place, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This right here, brothers and sisters, I think is one of the most comforting pictures for me personally of the work of Christ. And I, I think it really drives home the fullness of the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. 
We know our sins are forgiven, but just how much are they forgiven? I think we see here. The high priest lays his hands on the head of the goat and confesses all the sins of Israel, symbolizing the imputation, the transfer of all those sins to the goat. Those, goat, or those sins are no longer Israel's. They have now become the sins of the goat by imputation. And yet here what I find so comforting, I've drawn so many times from this truth, is that the sins of Israel are not merely imputed to the goat, but the goat is sent away, symbolizing the sins of Israel have themselves been sent away into the wilderness to be found no more. I have found that truth, brothers and sisters, that our sins have not only been forgiven, but in fact taken away to be a particular comfort when I am struggling with the lingering guilt of my sin. It means that I am so far forgiven that God not only does not punish me as I deserve, but he doesn't even identify my sins with me anymore. Such a comfort for a struggling conscience. You know, someone might think, well, yeah, God forgave me, right? But I'm still me. I still did what I did. I'm still stained with the guilt of my sin. I know he won't punish me, but how could he ever look upon me and love me? How could I ever live with myself in my stains, let alone live before God this way? And yet here we read, he does not merely pardon, but he also removes our sins from us altogether such that we are no longer covered in them. They're no longer ours. They're gone. It's not who we are. We're new creatures in Christ. I'm no longer identified with my sin. It's great comfort, brothers and sisters. We see this glorious truth expressed elsewhere many times in Scripture. Not just that we're pardoned, but our sin has been removed from us, almost physically with metaphors. For example, Micah 7, 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, comments on that passage and says, as the Lord said to Moses, the Egyptians whom ye have now seen, ye shall see no more. So also the Lord saith that our sins, which vexed us, we shall never hereafter see any more. For he will drown all our sins from out of his sight and they shall never any more vex us or grieve him, for they shall all be cast into the bottom of the sea. Similarly, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 50, verse 20, In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none. And sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Or as we saw in our call to worship today, Psalm 103, verse 12, David says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Christian, not only have your sins been forgiven, but the forgiveness is so full that you no longer bear them. They're not yours anymore. They can't be found. Spurgeon comments on Psalm 103, verse 12, if sin be removed so far, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. 
If this be the distance of its removal, there is no shade of fear of its ever being brought back again. Even Satan himself could not achieve such a task. Our sins are gone. Jesus has borne them away. Far as the place of sunrise is removed from the west, where the sun sinks when his day's journey is done, so far were our sins carried by Christ our scapegoat so many centuries ago. And now if they be sought, they shall not be found. Yea, they shall not be, saith the Lord. Be comforted, Christian. Your heart may condemn you. Say, look at how filthy you are. Gosh, you are covered in the filth of sin. Satan may condemn you. Look at the the robe stained with sins that is clinging to you. But God says, your sin is nowhere to be found. Look for it. You can't find it. I've cast it into the bottom of the sea. I've led it away into the wilderness. It can no longer come back upon you. We can rest in that. So full is our forgiveness. Well, with that, brothers and sisters, we have the final instructions for the Day of Atonement as far as the priest is concerned. Continues in verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. Well, here we have the last instructions to wrap everything up, at least as far as the priests are concerned. Finally, most importantly, we see here the burnt offerings are offered, clearly for atoning sin as well, but I think also in thanksgiving for the Lord's having accepted the sin offerings of the Day of Atonement. Now, in verse 29, we switch, actually, to the instructions for the people. Everything up to this point has been from the perspective largely of the high priest and his assistants, but now, in verses 29 through 32, it tells us what the people were were to do on the Day of Atonement. It says in verse 29, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, You shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. As I said before, we see that the day of atonement was a day of mourning over sin. Several times in these verses, God calls his people to afflict themselves for their sins and really to afflict themselves because atonement is going to be made for their sins. Now, this this affliction itself 
was in no way to atone for their own sins. It's never said to have that purpose. That belongs alone to the sacrifices. Rather, it seems the purpose of God was that by afflicting themselves, it put Israel in a fit state of heart and mind to truly appreciate the full weight of what was taking place on that day. This affliction was most likely a time of fasting and humbling of oneself. For example, the psalmist says in Psalm 35, But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth, I afflicted myself with fasting, I prayed with head bowed down on my chest, I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. So it's a time of fasting, but notice also it's a time of mourning. He mentions grief. There's a mourning over something, and in this case, it'd be sin. Furthermore, this fasting was not just a fasting from food, but really a fasting from all normal comforts and enjoyments of the body. Of course, food was not to be eaten, but as we've seen also, comfortable or at least flashy clothing was not to be worn. This is why elsewhere it says they would wear sackcloth. Um, Maybe not painful to wear, but the most kind of basic clothing, the most kind of humbling clothing you could wear. Furthermore, it seems elsewhere that when people fasted, they also kept themselves from sleep to some degree. For example, we read of David that he, quote, sought God on behalf of his child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Or the prophet Joel says to wayward priests of his day, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Similarly, things like sexual relations between a man and a wife would be part of this fasting as well. In fact, Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. He says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. The point of all of this is that this was a time to meditate upon, even to mourn over our sin. And by bringing about these bodily afflictions, the soul was put in a sober frame of mind. The soul was humbled. You know, brothers and sisters, We live and breathe the air of just materialism, right? Even the soul. Basically, (laughs) neurologists will just tell you, well, that's just electrical impulses in your mind, right? We are body and soul, though, according to Scripture. And one affects the other. Soul affects body. Body affects soul. By humbling themselves in the body, the purpose is that they would be humbled in soul. The Puritan Henry Wilkinson wrote of fasting that, quote, we abstain for a time that we might thereby have a quicker feeling of our own unworthiness. We bring down the body that the mind may likewise be brought down. That is ultimately the purpose of why God has his people afflict themselves on the day of atonement, that they would see the full magnitude of their sin of the holiness of God, of the need for atonement, that they would repent of those things. Historically, the Day of Atonement was not just a day of mourning, but a day of repentance. And interestingly, 
fasting and repentance in Scripture often go hand in hand. As far as how we might apply this to ourselves, you might say, well, pastor, you just said that all my sins are in the bottom of the sea, so why would I mourn over them? Well, you're right to a certain degree. If you have repented, you've confessed of a certain sin, that thing has been cast into the sea. There's no need to mourn over it. You know why? It's at the bottom of the sea. It's not there anymore. I would say, however, there is still an appropriate time when we even today mourn over our sin. There's even a time and a place for Christians under the new covenant to afflict themselves with mourning and fasting and abstaining, humbling the body that they might humble the heart. I would say that this is ultimately when we have half-hearted repentance. If you have repented of a sin, and that thing has been confessed, that thing's at the bottom of the sea. But if you have not repented, you've been confessing the same sin over and over again, it's a sign of half-hearted repentance. We talked about this in Sunday school. I said, you know the dead giveaway for if if your repentance is half-hearted? You keep sinning the same sin. I said, I notice there's times when I'm writing in, in, uh, in my prayer journal, and in my time of confession, I say, Lord, I, I confess I've been really snippy with my wife. Please forgive me. I go back to the day before. Lord, I confess I've been really snippy. Wow. I've... Maybe the problem is I've not truly repented. <laughs> That's typically a dead giveaway. I would say in those times, humbling ourselves through prayer and fasting is appropriate. Not because we somehow atone for our sins, but because the problem is our heart isn't getting it. There's a disconnect. We're confessing with our mouths, but there's no repentance. It's half-hearted. And by humbling ourselves and seeking the Lord, we too can be put in a frame of repentance. That is not at all contrary to the fullness of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. On the contrary, I would say, that when people don't repent, when they don't mourn over their sin, it's because they have a small view of the sufferings of Christ on the cross. If you and I, brothers and sisters, had a full appreciation of the fact that blood was spilt from our Savior, how might that affect how we look at our sin? Oh, we might not love it, but mourn it and hate it. Why? Because it caused His suffering. And so I would say there is a time and a place humbling ourselves and repenting. That being said, even when God does send help, it still comes from the temple. It comes from the sanctuary where Christ sends his purifying spirit to strengthen and give us repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you For your great wisdom, Lord, how wise you are in these types and shadows that you have given us to set forth the great fullness of the forgiveness of sins in your Son. Father, I pray for any here who feel a lingering condemnation over their sin which they have confessed and repented of. Father, would you impress upon their hearts the great truth 
that Christ has borne away their sins. He has removed it from them, and it is no longer on them. It can't be found. Would you give them great hope in that, Father? I pray also, Lord, that we would be a people not who go about in gloom and mourning constantly. Of all people, we have greatest cause to rejoice. And yet, Lord, I do pray that you'd give us tender consciences that mourn over sin. Tender hearts that when we look upon our sin in the light of the blood of Jesus and his sufferings, would just break our heart. Oh, Father, would you help us to be a people that seek to do nothing that would be worthy of causing our Savior suffering on the cross. We pray that you would help us to do that, Lord, in Christ's name.